The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the 1980s, several bodies were discovered along the highways of the American South over the course of several years. They were all women, they all had red hair, and all of them had been murdered. Join me now as we take a look at the Redhead Murders, a long-forgotten mystery involving six murder victims and five Jane Doe's. You'll hear how a podcaster and a group of high school students worked together to crack a 30-year-old mystery and identify a serial killer. Driving along Americans' interstates and highways, it's not uncommon to pass white crosses on the side of the road. Their roadside memorials, a marker placed in the final location where loved ones passed away, most commonly from traffic accidents, but in six locations along various interstates, stretching 700 miles from Arkansas to West Virginia, there are an entirely different set of crosses along the road. These ones are red, and they weren't traffic accidents. They were murders. And the person responsible for each of these victims was a serial killer, targeting women he believed society wouldn't care if they were missing. And ultimately, he got away with it, because he was right. This is a unique case unlike any other we've ever told because it involves a podcast host who went beyond what you'd normally expect from a podcaster. Shane Waters is a gentle giant with a talent for digging deep into cases, sometimes further than even law enforcement themselves. With a background in private investigation, Shane isn't confined by what information he finds available on cases he covers online. With boots on the ground, Shane travels to interview family members of victims, detectives, or anyone who could provide answers. And that's what he did in this case. So in early 2017, my cousin who lives in Barberville, Kentucky, had reached out to me. She saw this really old cemetery on a big hill. And in the back of the cemetery, in the very back, there is a small stone that says Jane Doe. And that really caught her attention. She had never seen something like that before. And she sent me a photo. And immediately, I thought, who is this? The date on it was in the early 1980s. And I just wondered, how do we not know who this woman is? So I looked up anything I could find on her online. There were some old articles that were written about her. She was found on April 1st, 1985. She was completely nude, and her body was found inside of an old, white Admiral refrigerator. The refrigerator Shane was referring to was one of those old-style ones that latched from the outside, notoriously known in the 50s for trapping children who were unfortunate enough to get inside. 
So many children actually died from getting stuck inside and suffocating. They were made illegal in 1956. Even so, it wasn't uncommon to find these old refrigerators illegally dumped in woods alongside highways decades later, with children still getting trapped and suffocating in the abandoned fridges. As Shane tried to find out more information on the Jane Doe, he was surprised to find very little. There was nothing in the news recently. There was nothing about her being identified, and I thought that was very strange. Besides her being nude, there was no other pieces of clothing found with her except two necklaces. One of them was an eagle that was in flight, and the other one was a heart pendant. And I remember writing that down, thinking that it may be important later. So I went to Barberville, Kentucky. I was able to track down some locals who remembered her being found. And some of the locals told me that when she was found, everyone in the community was really curious on who she was. No one recognized her. They held a funeral for her. Everyone in the community and the surrounding community came to it trying to identify her. No one knew who she was. So the cemetery that she's buried in was actually a family cemetery, and that family donated the plot for her. The town got together to buy her the stone. While Shane was in Barberville, he managed to track down the detective who originally worked the case with the Kentucky State Police back in 1985. After heading over to the retired detective's home to discuss the case with him, Shane was shocked by what he learned. So he brings out these two large boxes. And I'm going through all of these documents, all these photos, you know, the necklaces is there, and all of the evidence for this case, they're not at the Kentucky State Police Station. Later on, I, I was able to track down an eyewitness who sees this woman before she's murdered. The eyewitness name is Bruce. Bruce was a manager at the truck stop. The truck stop was known for having a, a lot of sex workers at it. This manager knew that it was a bad issue. That night at the truck stop, there was a young woman matching the description of the victim that would be later found in the fridge. And one of the waitresses at the restaurant recognized that one of the truckers was likely going to pay for her services. And so what he saw was that she was getting into this flat nose semi-truck that was red. And the description that he gave matched the description that she looked like. As he saw that they were getting into the truck, the truck pulls out. When it gets to the light, the truck drives left, and left would bring you to the location of where her body would be found the next morning. The county coroner at the time wasn't a medical doctor. He believed the unidentified woman most likely had been smothered in some way, although strangulation couldn't be ruled out. There was also another possibility. Perhaps it had something to do with the very reason the old fridges had been banned in the first place. Maybe the woman had accidentally locked herself inside and suffocated. But why on earth would a woman, without any clothes on, purposely place herself inside an abandoned fridge, in the woods, in the middle of the night? Maybe she was hiding from someone, but who and why? Along with the rest of the evidence the detective had in his home was a thick notepad filled with handwritten notes, something that piqued Shane's interest. I asked him what was with the notepad, and he said, well, when we found this woman, we realized that this could be one of the redhead murder victims. And I was like, well, what's that? Never heard of that before. And he said that back in the 80s, when this was happening, 
Over a course of about two months, a certain type of woman was being murdered. They were all redheads. It was involving strangulation and involving sex workers at truck stops. They were being found around the Tennessee, Kentucky area, West Virginia, Arkansas, etc. And they quickly realized that it could be a serial killer. So he had to go to this big meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, where the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation was holding this big meeting with all of these other detectives from these other areas about could all these be linked. So here I had this big thick notepad of all of his notes from this week-long meeting about each of these victims. And at that meeting, they were talking about like 16, maybe 17 victims that could be linked. Again, these were all redheaded women, strangled sex workers at truck stops. So that's how many people they were thinking could be linked. But he said after that meeting, it didn't really go anywhere. And it kind of fizzled out and everyone went their own way. And that's really how this whole thing started. Any progress made by law enforcement into the redhead murders seemed to have fizzled out some time around the late 80s. And now, 30 years later, a podcaster from Indiana was beginning to rework the case. The next thing that happens in all of this is I'm looking at all of these women, there's 16 of them, and I'm thinking, how in the world are there 16 women here? I have never heard about the redhead murders. I've never heard about this case. I'm in Indiana. I'm not that far from Kentucky, one state above. How have I never heard about any of this? So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start looking into this, seeing, you know, what can I do to help? So out of all of these victims, I start looking to see, could any of them actually be connected or were they just wasting their time back then? So I started looking more at the specifics on what type of location these women are being found in, what type of people these women are, the manner of death, things like that. I narrowed it down to six women. And then I started looking more into each of those six women, each of those six individual cases. And out of the six women, all of them were still Jane Doe victims, except one of them. Shane had no idea he was about to find himself in the middle of a mission to not only find a serial killer, but the identities of five unknown female victims as well. Using what little information he had, Shane traveled to West Memphis, Arkansas to investigate the unsolved murder of the only victim who'd been identified, Lisa Nichols. Her body was found September 16, 1984. She was found along I-40, as if you're heading outside of West Memphis, Arkansas. She was only found wearing a sweater, nothing else. About nine months later in June, two people who knew her came forward and said that they recognized her. And this is really what sparked the fire in me and what really got me devoted to the case. Because the detective back then, who was in charge of solving the case, was being interviewed when she was identified. He was quoted as saying, Lisa Nichols has a drug problem worse than my car has a gasoline problem. And he said, she has a prostitution record that stretches from the floor to the ceiling two times. Now, this is the very person who should be going out to the public asking them for their help. Now, this is the person who should be asking everyone, hey, we have a victim of a murder here. Can you come help me? Get the public to care. How do you get them to care if you're calling her a prostitute, calling her a drug addict? You don't. 
if this is how detectives are treating them, this is how society is going to treat them. Then sensitive words spoken by the original detective not only sparked a fire in Shane, they provided a revelation. It suddenly became clear to Shane why the killer was targeting these particular women, because he knew he could get away with it. One thing that I learned later is that Lisa Nichols had a daughter when she went missing. She had a very young daughter. They both disappeared around the same time. After Lisa was found murdered, no one ever found her daughter. She is still missing. No one is looking for her. There is no record of her. There is no adoption record of her. She was just never found. But I think that it's important for people to realize that there's a young child out there that could have been murdered or taken and we need to we need to keep her keep her on our minds. Shane decided to bring the new information to relevant authorities and contacted the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, the same agency that had convened the original Redhead Murders conferences back in the 80s. So I reached out to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, the TBI, and during my phone call they told me that there was no one actively working the case, that this was with their cold case division, but there was no one actively working on it. So I kept up with them, kept contacting them, and finally they told me it was going to be assigned to someone. Eventually I asked if I could speak to someone about it because I was starting to collect information like the Lisa Nichols and the daughter thing, and I thought that was important. Also, I had the original detective. He has all the original files. I thought that would be important for them to know. And I wanted to be able to give that to whoever is responsible for all of these. I'm just a podcaster from Indiana. I cannot make an arrest or run DNA. I have no power here. So I wanted to be able to provide that to them. And the lady who I spoke with on the phone told me that she'd passed the message, but if they want to communicate with me, they'll call me. And then she hung up on me. So I never received anything from them and basically was just given their general email to give tips to. Okay, that's fine. I'm a podcaster. I'm a no one. That's fine. So again, I'm just out here <laughs> in Arkansas at that point doing my thing. And I just thought, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Keep on keeping on, Shane. Let's do this. By this point, Shane had been investigating the case for more than five months. He was hooked and determined to find answers. And although law enforcement didn't seem eager to work with him, he was about to get some help from an unlikely source. I'm out on the road doing this all by myself, lonely me in a car, feeling like I'm against a wall, facing off with the TBI who's not going to help me. And I get this message from this high school teacher in Elizabethton, Tennessee, from Alex Campbell. He's a sociology teacher. And he writes me and he says, Hey Shane, I teach sociology class and I try to teach my students a little outside of the box. And for this semester, we wanted to find a Jane Doe in our community and find out maybe why she is still a Jane Doe. And the only one in our community, we looked her up, and the only thing that we can find about her is that she may have once been a part of this Redhead Murders group. And the only thing that we can find on it is a Facebook post that you've made. <laughs> that's the only thing since the 80s that's anywhere in sight. Would you be willing to talk to me about this? And I said... Hey, Alex, I'd love to. I'll come to you. I'll come talk to you. After receiving the call from the high school teacher, 
Shane drove to Elizabethton in far eastern Tennessee to speak with a classroom of students. He had no idea at the time they would soon become his greatest asset, his sidekicks, in solving a mystery more than 30 years in the making. I work with the kids to do a lot of different things. They were able to get a retired FBI profile to come to the school, and we were able to put together an eight-page profile of the killer based on all of the different cases. Now, he tasked the students to look at every single one of the cases that the TBI had once looked at and ask them, based on what he taught them about how to profile serial killers, ask them which ones could be linked. And I kid you not, if these students didn't all combine and they picked out the exact same six that I picked out. Now, they had no way to know. Alex didn't know which ones I picked out. So I go back to the school. They tell me what all they found out. We were able to create this eight-page profile of a serial killer. And the profile goes down to the very details of where they think this guy is out of. One important thing to know is that all these women are being disposed of on the side of interstates. And it's believed that they were being picked up at truck stops. Again, they are sex workers. And they're all very young, redhead women. And we also knew that they were all being strangled. The level of detail and insight these students put into their serial killer profile they created, simply through analyzing the six victims, was quite frankly remarkable. They determined the killer was most likely a trucker operating out of Knoxville, Tennessee. They connected the timing of the first known murders to a law called the Motor Carriers Act of 1980, which deregulated the trucking industry and dramatically increased the number of new small trucking companies. They believed once the killer began trucking, he had a newfound opportunity to begin killing. They even concluded that their killer was most likely involved in a long-term personal relationship, possibly even a wife. Shane and the class then came up with a name for the serial killer they were looking for, the Bible Belt Strangler. We wanted to reach the attention of as many people as we could because we wanted to identify these women. So they organized a press conference and they invited the press from every small town where all these women were found in hopes that these local people would find these stories and identify some of these women. And at the same time, I was creating these Facebook posts of images of these women, and I was publishing them alongside this press conference that was going out. So the press conference goes out. We invited all the original detectives to come out and all the current detectives in the areas where these women were found. We also invited the TBI. The TBI refused to come. So Alex and I explained to the TBI that we will have to tell the news agencies, all of the new news agencies that are coming here, that they're going to have to call a podcaster and some high school students because the TBI doesn't want their information. They suddenly gave us a number for people to call. But I remember as I was walking up to the door and I saw all of the press that was there and I just thought, Shane, what did you get yourself into? You know, there's this thought of, I'm way over my head. I'm going to make people mad. What if the guy's out there? What if he sees this? It, there's just a lot, of, a lot of things that came to my mind, and it was very overwhelming. So there Shane was, giving a press conference to a host of local news agencies. Was any of it going to help? Was there any way they could actually make a difference in these unsolved cases? 
a podcaster and some high school students trying to identify five Jane Doe's and one serial killer. It all seemed a bit crazy, but then something strange happened. Six cases that had remained unsolved for 30 years with stagnant investigations started to see movement. One of the Facebook posts end up reaching this lady out of Spindale, North Carolina. The lady sees this Facebook post of this woman, and this is specifically the Jane Doe out of Barberville. And she thinks, wow, that sure looks like my niece's mom. And she thought, I'll just go ahead and contact the Kentucky State Police and let them know that I think this might be my niece's mom. So she does that, and she also contacts me. And the Kentucky State Police called the possible woman's daughter. Her name is Elizabeth. She was just born when her mom disappeared. So Elizabeth never knew her mom, never knew what happened. And in her mind, she kind of thought maybe her mom just abandoned her, you know, and ran off and had a new family. That's what she thought. So she was really hesitant to talk about it. And eventually she did agree to talk to me. And so we had a really long conversation over the phone. And she told me about her mom and how her dad came home one day and her mom had disappeared and just found her in a diaper, just laying on the floor, basically crying. Her mom's name was Espy, Espy Regina Pilgrim. Her mom had a history of uh, having some mental breakdowns. So Elizabeth believed that her mom may have gone through some postpartum depression, and that may have been why she suddenly got up and left. Her mom did have a history of arrests for sex working, As Shane spoke with Elizabeth, it sounded more and more likely her mother could really be the Barberville Jane Doe. When I talked to Elizabeth, I asked her, you know, what did your mom look like? Did you have any pictures of her? And her mom was very short. And one thing that stuck out about this woman in the fridge is that she was very short. She was four foot something, very petite, and that matched her mom. She also had a C-section scar that matches her mom. But then I knew about the two necklaces, the eagle and the heart pendant. So I asked her, without giving that information to her, do you know of any jewelry your mom would have had? She asked her older brother, who would have had a better relationship with her because he was much older than her, if he knew of any jewelry that she would have kept on her. And he said yes, she had a few. One of them was a heart that their stepdad gave her for their anniversary. And the other was an eagle. And I asked about the eagle. I was like, why why an eagle? That's so random. What's the significance of an eagle? And she said, well, he's not happy about this. But my brother broke into a high school and stole this necklace, which was the mascot. And it was a, of an eagle that was in flight and ended up giving it to my mom as a gift many years after he did it. And she just kept it because it was a cool pendant. And so here in my mind, I thought, okay, hi, Espy. Now we know who you are. DNA testing would later confirm what Shane had already figured out, that Epsi Pilgrim was in fact the Barberville Jane Doe, a watershed moment. Not only had he accomplished what he'd originally set out to discover, it also meant the plan devised by the students was working. Word was getting out and people were noticing. I tracked down one of the original detectives that works out of Tennessee. 
And I asked him about the cases in Tennessee and the, the TBI's original investigation. And I asked him if he believed that there were other women beyond just these six that myself and these kids narrowed it down to. And he said, I have no doubt that there are more, but you'll never find them. And I was kind of taken aback. I was like, what do you mean I'll never find them? And he's like, I think that they would have been marked as suicides. And I asked why. And he said, because they're throwaway people. And I had never heard that term before in my life. And I had to have him explain that to me. And he said, well, Shane, a throwaway person is someone who society deems as disposable. So if you are homeless, if you have a drug problem, if you're a sex worker, you're a throwaway person. And he's like, that's just the way that things were back then. This perception of throwaways by many law enforcement back in the 80s was the sad truth. It was the moment Shane realized the case was becoming much more personal than he'd ever anticipated. Okay, Shane, this is why you have a much bigger stake in all of this. Because at one point in my life, I was a throwaway person. It was my senior year of high school, and I had nowhere to go. And so I was living in a closet at the school for most of the time. No one knew I was doing it. And I knew that if I got caught, it would likely prevent me from going to college. And I knew if I could just get myself to college, I could get out of the situation. I was abandoned and I couldn't rely on other people and I didn't trust anyone. So I knew that I could only trust myself and I could only rely on myself. So I could have easily have been in the position of these women. But what, what separated me from them was that this person took away their opportunity to leave, to get out. I knew I could work myself out of being homeless if I could get myself to college. He strangled them to death before they could ever leave. He stole that from them. So for the rest of eternity, they would be treated as throwaway people because that's how they were treated when they were killed by this person. So the, all that goes to say, if I would have been killed when I was homeless, would I have been treated like a throwaway person compared to if I was killed today? Feeling a strong personal connection with the victims, Shane decided to do something bold place crosses along the highways as roadside memorials in the various locations the women's bodies had been discovered. But these crosses weren't white. He'd painted them red. I drive home and I get my brother to help me. We go collect wood and we paint these red wooden crosses that we make. I go to the location where each of these women were found and put these crosses at. And the idea behind it was that if this guy didn't care about them, and if these detectives didn't care about them, and if society didn't care about them, then I just wanted to do my part in thinking that at least someone cared. Because I'm sure you've driven along an interstate before and you've seen a cross, and you know, as soon as you see it, you realize, oh, someone's loved one died there. And I wanted these women to have that. But what I didn't expect is that people in those communities and people who were driving around would be Googling red wooden crosses on the side of the interstate, and they'd be coming back to these social media posts. I didn't expect that. There were now six red crosses along the interstates of America's Bible Belt, one for each woman Shane now believed were victims of an unknown serial killer. He knew the names of two of them, Lisa Nichols in Arkansas and Depsy Pilgrim in Kentucky. 
but four women still remained completely unidentified. The first cross I put in is our next Jane Doe. She's found just north of Knoxville, Tennessee, right over the Kentucky state border into Tennessee. She's known as the Campbell County Jane Doe. She's found on January 1st, 1985. Her body is found. She's wrapped in a blanket. Her feet and her hands are tied together. And there is tape completely around her as well. On the blanket, the original detective in Tennessee told me that he discovered that there was semen on it. And he, he knew that back then and that he took the precautions that he needed to preserve it. So I knew in that moment, if I can just get the TBI to test this DNA, we'll have the killer. But I also have to remember the TBI, they don't necessarily like hearing from me. Not long after this, Shane noticed a woman named Liza Plummer tagged in one of the comments regarding the Campbell County Jane Doe by someone who believed it might be her sister. So you can probably guess what Shane did next. He reached out to Liza. So we have a long conversation back and forth. I ask her about her sister. She gives me some photos of her from back then and explains she's not heard from her. Her family hasn't heard from her and that they reported her missing back then, but no one's ever heard from her. Later on, I go meet her in person in Indianapolis and she tells me the story about Tina Farmer, her sister. Tina, at a very young age, I believe she was around 16, came under the influence of a pimp at a local truck stop. She was being trafficked by him, and she was being drugged by him. And Liza told me that her and her dad were trying to get her out from his influence, but they couldn't get to her. And before they knew it, she disappeared. When she goes missing... The pimp tells the family members that she was with a trucker and he left with her heading south. 72 hours after Tina was last seen leaving with the trucker was when the body of the Campbell County Doe was discovered, more than 300 miles south of Indianapolis. The 72-hour time period also fit perfectly within the estimated time of death upon her discovery. Although Tina Farmer's family had reported her missing to police, Shane learned the detectives hadn't taken it seriously, and the family's missing persons report was never officially filed. I immediately tell Liza that we need to contact the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. They're the ones in charge of her sister's case, and they, they would be the ones that confirms her identity. I sent an email to them and gave them all of her contact information and all the information from my interviewing her and laid out in plain form why I believed this was her and explained why her missing persons case had never been filed. I never heard back, but, but then I hear back from Liza that, that they showed up at her house uh, about a week later um, and then they went and did dental records from Tina they were able to match them, so they were able to positively identify her as Tina Farmer. Although Shane had been the one to alert the TBI about Tina Farmer's identity, they never contacted him to let him know that a positive ID had been made. Despite getting the cold shoulder from the TBI, Shane wasn't dismayed and continued to work the case. One thing Shane did to help identify these women was to make sure they were all entered into the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NAMUS for short. 
That way all the Jane Doe's would have their DNA on file in a massive government-run database. It was this important step that led to discovering the identity of the victim of the next Red Cross along the highway in Greene County, Tennessee. This is the county that is nearest to Alex Campbell and his students. Her body was found on April 14, 1985, but she was already in advanced stage of decomposition, and they believe that she was killed three to six weeks prior. When I talked to the original detective, he said that she had cigarette burns on her body, and she did have blunt force trauma, and with her stage of decomposition, he couldn't say for certain if she was strangled, but he couldn't rule that out. She's identified next, and this weird scenario plays out. So her name is Elizabeth Lamont, and she's from New Hampshire. She was reported missing, and her brother submitted DNA because they thought that this Jane Doe that was up in the New England area could be Elizabeth Lamont. When they went to compare her DNA, they discovered that that wasn't her, but at that point in time, they linked it back to our Jane Doe. The word was getting out. The DNA was in the database, and one by one, the Jane Doe's were having their identities returned to them. But there were still two unidentified victims, two women still only known as Jane Doe. Now I'm about to tell you the very little information I have on the two unidentified people. One of the unidentified victims is the Wetzel County Jane Doe. She was found in Wetzel County, West Virginia. She was found on February 13th. 1983, which would make her the very first victim that was possibly linked to the serial killer. She was also unique in the fact that she would also be the oldest victim of his. They believe that she was between the age of 35 to 45. I was able to track down the original detective back then, and he told me that the day that she was found, she wasn't found very far from the police station, which was very interesting to me, I thought. But he said that She was found without clothing by two older people who thought that she was a mannequin. Even today, when you speak to the West Virginia state troopers, they are a little hesitant on believing that this woman could be related because of her age. I think that's all that I know about her, unfortunately. The other unidentified person, I know much less. She's from Cheatham County, Tennessee. She is still a Jane Doe. She was found on March 31st, 1985. She was skeletonized, and the city, the town, is Pleasant View, Tennessee. She was found right along I-24, and authorities believe that she had been killed about three to five months prior to her being found. But they could tell that she had red hair. Of course, because of her being a skeleton, it was impossible for them to tell how she was killed. Although West Virginia authorities are skeptical that Wetzel County Jane Doe may have been one of the redhead murder's victims, there was something in the serial killer profile that Alex's high school class created that could suggest otherwise. Based on the geographical data from the victim's locations, the students concluded that if the Wetzel County Jane Doe wasn't one of his victims, the serial killer was probably operating out of Nashville in the western half of Tennessee. If they did include Wetzel County, which they were inclined to do, this suggests the killer was based out of the Knoxville area in the eastern half of the state. It wouldn't be long before they discovered just how right they'd been about everything. 
The FBI learned about what we were doing and the kids working with this retired FBI profiler. And the FBI, the Behavioral Science Department, invited the kids to come to Knoxville to show them this profile that we've created. So the kids and Alex, we all go to Knoxville. The director of the profiling department is there and all the agents. They got to present all the information and why they came up with it and their theories and all this information. And then they got to take questions and the FBI profilers uh, give feedback. And that's when, when I really realized like we're onto something. Like we may actually get to this guy. What had started out as an attempt to discover the identity of one Jane Doe was now becoming a bona fide hunt for a serial killer. Working off the students' profiles, Shane locked into a very important detail, one that would have him down another rabbit hole. Suddenly, in 1985, these murders stop. What caused him to stop? Did he get too old where he can no longer physically, manually strangle someone? Was he no longer traveling alone? Did he die? I also was thinking, did anyone survive their attack? With that in mind, I started looking for people who may have survived their attack. Using the FBI profile that the kids and I created, I knew that this guy likely was working out of the Knoxville area, the center of all these crimes. And just so happens to be, in Knoxville, this man named Jerry Johns went to prison for attempted murder of a woman named Melinda Shack. In March 1985, a truck driver named Jerry Johns and his brother met two dancers at a strip club in Knoxville called Catch One. After joining the brothers back in their hotel rooms, Jerry drove one of the women back, and that's when a sinister side of him emerged. Instead of driving her back to the club, he pulled over in a wooded section along I-40 where he attempted to murder her. She later told police Jerry had become absolutely enraged when he discovered she dyed her hair, that she wasn't a real redhead, apparently something deeply important to him. Using the woman's own skirt, Jerry strangled her until she passed out. Believing she was dead, he left her in the woods, but miraculously, she survived. Soon after, she was able to identify Jerry Johns as her attacker and he was arrested. He would later be convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 73 years in prison. So I end up going to Nashville to get access to the archives for the court case. And in it, I see notes, handwritten notes, from interviews that detectives are having with him. And at this point in time, I'm thinking, okay, this woman, he didn't pick her up from a truck stop, but he is a trucker. He fits our profile to a T. To a T, he's a trucker. He owns a trucking company, a small trucking company. He's in the Knoxville area. This woman is a redhead, exotic dancer. So I'm thinking, this is close. So I'm looking through the handwritten notes, and they interview him, and they were trying to ask him, like, why he went after her specifically. And he started talking about how these women who sell sex are the bottom of the barrel people, they're worthless. They deserve to die. She deserved it. And I was like, okay, this is exactly the type of language I would, I would suspect this person to use. Unfortunately, Jerry Johns died in 2015 in prison, so I couldn't go interview him. But I found the address for his widow. She invites me in. 
and we have a very long conversation. And after my conversation with her, I was 100% sure this is our man. This is him. There is nothing in the world that could have prepared Shane for the story he was about to hear from Jerry John's widow. Buckle up, because now you're about to hear it too. So what she tells me is that her and Jerry John's have been neighbors for all her life, that they grew up there on that same street. Her parents were next-door neighbors to his parents. And when she was around 12 years old, he was around 20 years old. And he started hiding in their attic because he went AWOL from the military. And then when he did that, he started having a sexual relationship with her. Again, she was 12 years old, and he was around 20. They fell in love with each other, as she says, and she got pregnant at 12 years old. So they went to her dad and explained that she was pregnant by him. And that's when her dad explained to her that they are actually half-siblings. And Jerry Johns, he always had a rocky relationship with his mom because she was a sex worker. So he falls in love with this 12-year-old, and they are in love with each other. She's pregnant, and he already has hurt feelings for his mom because of her being a sex worker. And then now he learns that she also had been cheating on his dad with their neighbor, and the love of his life is also his half-sister. In order to legally get married, they moved to Texas where his mother and the man he thought was his father lived. Jerry had spent some time in prison for having gone AWOL, and to make matters worse, their child passed away at a very young age from complications the doctors believed were most likely due to incest. So I looked and, and I realized that around the same time that they moved to Texas, that's when he starts up his little trucking company. We knew from creating the profile that at some point in time, when the killing started, he had to have suddenly been introduced the ability to kill people. So he starts up this trucking company, just a small little truck. He's doing it himself. Then his brother jumps on with a new truck. He starts doing all this traveling. She explains that that's kind of when his personality kind of switched. That's when he started becoming mean. And I asked her if she ever went with him to these different truck stops. And she said, yes, there was one instance where she did go with him. And he explained to her that there are these women who work at these truck stops. He called them lot lizards. And he said that they are worthless. They are horrible people. And they're just bothersome in your way all the time. She recognized immediately that he had a hatred towards these type of people. And she also recognized that they also reminded him of his mom. And that's also why she thought that he hated that type of person. Jerry's victims reminded him of his mother, but it wasn't just because of their occupation. They had something else in common with her as well. She had red hair, as did both Jerry and his half-sister who he'd married. Then that's when I, I really recognized, like, okay, this really could be him. Now, I do have a belief that I think his brother was helping him. Him and his brother, from talking to the widow, him and his brother were very, very close, and they often were together in the truck. So I have a feeling that his brother was involved as well, but there would be no way unless DNA ever showed up for anyone to prove that uh, his brother is deceased as well. The widow gave me pictures of Jerry's truck, 
and it matched the description that Bruce gave in Barberville, Kentucky, the red flat-nosed truck SB was seen getting into. What was interesting, though, is the man that Bruce describes, though, didn't match the description of this guy. Jerry Johns was a redhead, but his brother, it matched the description of his brother to a T. After speaking to Jerry John's widow, Shane was convinced he was the killer they'd been looking for. But in order to know for sure, he had to reach out to the one organization that didn't seem to want to hear from him. Here I go again. I did another contact to the TBI. I pleaded that they compare him to DNA that I learned that they had from that blanket that Tina Farmer was wrapped up in. Because I knew if they could compare it to him, I thought that they would match but if they didn't, I figured that if that guy's in the database anywhere, then that will, you know, identify him. So the next thing that happens is it's 2020 and I get a text message from a reporter that had been in communication with Alex and I out of Knoxville. And he said, hey, Shane, I'm not exactly sure what's happening, but tomorrow early morning, the TBI is holding a press conference All we know is it's connected to Tina Farmer, but we don't know anything else. So I contact Liza, Tina Farmer's sister, and I'm like, hey, you know anything about this? And she's like, no, I have no idea. They've not contacted me at all about this. So I contact Alex, who's over in Elizabethton. Alex is like, man, that's pretty early tomorrow. But he got it approved and he got a local press person to go with him. He's like, I'm going to show up to this press conference. Shane and Alex quickly realized the TBI didn't want them to know about the press conference in advance and certainly didn't want either of them showing up. So Alex goes and he shows up to this press conference with a press badge. Good afternoon. I'm Jared Eppard, the elected district attorney for Tennessee's 8th Judicial District, of which Campbell County is a part of. And Liza, Tina's sister, and I both join via Facebook Live. You know, we're watching the event as it's being streamed by one of the media people there. My blood boils thinking about this. So the TBI stands up and you can hear them patting themselves on the back. I'd like to recognize Special Agent Brandon Elkins and Intelligence Analyst Amy Emberton who worked on this case over the years. We've been working so hard on this case and we are proud to say that through all of our hard work, We've been able to convene a grand jury and we've presented the DNA of a Jerry Johns and we've compared it to the DNA of semen found on Tina Farmer and we presented it to the grand jury and the grand jury came back and said if Jerry Johns was alive, they would motion to charge him. So that's as far as you can get with someone who's deceased and my jaw's dropping because I realize this is him. This entire time, the sister to the victim that they're talking about, they just identified the killer. She's learning about it over Facebook, watching a video they did not tell her about. That profile matched that of Jerry Jones, who was first identified as a possible suspect in this investigation in the mid-80s. So she is blowing up that chat, telling them a what for and how they are not appropriate, you know, that that is not very nice of them, and how hurtful it is to learn about that, watching it, and, and how hurtful and how unkind it was. 
On one hand, it was a remarkable moment for Shane. The TBI was officially confirming he'd correctly identified Tina Farmer's murderer. He'd put in the shoe leather investigation work that no one else was willing to do. And he'd been right. On the other hand, the inappropriateness of the press conference itself was impossible to ignore. And if having an understandably angry family member commenting on the live stream wasn't bad enough for the TBI, they were in for quite a surprise when they began taking questions from the members of the press. The first question was, What was her family's reaction to this news that you guys presented us today? And the TBI was like, I think they were happy to have some sort of conclusion. And the entire time, Liza is just going off, you know, lies, lies, lies. They've not contacted me at all. I'm her sister. I have her ashes right here. And they've not told me a thing. And then they ask for another question. The next voice I hear is a very familiar East Tennessee accent of Alex Campbell. And Alex says, did you specifically contact Liza Plummer, her sister? And you just see the face on, on his face just go, oh, crap. And he goes, well, we're not we're not giving specifics on who we're talking to. We're just going to talk about you know, the hard work that we've been doing. The next thing Alex asks is he says, how long have you been working on this case? And the next guy goes, well, this guy right here has been working on this case for about 10 years. He's been really working hard on it. Da, 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 da. He asked a question about how has the podcaster and, and high school team helped the case? And they quickly were like, we're not taking questions anymore. Everyone have a good day. And they left. And by the time Alex gets back to school, Alex had a message from a retired TBI agent that was told by the director of the TBI that we need to stop sticking our nose into this case and stop making them look bad. So, so I'm, I'm not, I don't have to worry about a serial killer here anymore. But the TBI have a serious problem with some high school students and a podcaster for some reason. And why they're lying to people about them telling a sister of a victim, I have no idea. Because of Shane and the students' efforts, three out of the five redhead murders Jane Doe's have now been identified. And not only that, Tina Farmer's murderer had been identified, but so far, she's the only one Jerry Johns has been officially linked to. Jerry Johns has only been linked, officially, by the grand jury, to one of the victims. Now, what's also important, the TBI does not address whatsoever, but Tina Farmer was pregnant when she was murdered. And in Tennessee, you can charge someone for murder if they murder someone who's pregnant, but they didn't get Jerry Johns for that either. They just went after him for the one. He's already gotten away with this for so long. I would have brought up the child thing too in front of the grand jury as well. Get him for both because there's two lives that were lost there because of his actions. In this entire scenario, there are two children here that were forgotten. Lisa Nichols' child and Tina Farmer's child. Although many of these victims have been forgotten by law enforcement, Missing case files and evidence boxes left in the homes of retired detectives. Shane realized there was one group who'd never forgotten these women, their families. All three victims that were identified had something in common. Their family members reported them missing, but each of them were not actually taken seriously. 
they were not actually reported in the way that they should have been reported. So the family members did what they were supposed to do, but detectives didn't do their part of the deal. And so I think for these two women, that may be the case as well, that their family members have been looking for them, but they may be under the false impression that their loved ones are actively being worked as missing people. So I think an important message that I would have to everyone that would be listening is if you have a loved one that's been missing recently or a long time, make sure that they are actively being worked and that they are in every database. Put that pressure on. If you've not heard back for a while, contact them. Because all the three ones that I've been able to identify, those family members have thought for years that those detectives were actively working the cases. And that wasn't what was happening. Today, the work continues on the case because it's not over. There are still at least two unidentified women who were victims of this serial killer. If someone's listening or if I could reach the right type of people and if they have the feeling that their loved one back then could have been in a scenario that they could find themselves at truck stops as sex workers, which no one wants to ever think that their loved one could be. If you think that your loved one could have fallen into that situation and they were a redheaded woman, this very well could be your loved one. I think there were two moments when I felt personally involved. One of them was when I learned about what the detective was saying about Lisa Nichols. He's taking out our trash, guys. Like, we don't have to care about this. And that really upset me. Because here was this person talking about a human being like that. And then learning about what the detective told me about throwaway people. And then that really, that put me back. This guy was specifically going after this type of person because he knew no one was going to care about them. So I, I think for society to treat people like that back then and now, I hope, I really hope that we're in a different place. I think that's why I feel a very strong connection to this entire case and these women and why it was important for me to put those crosses up and return their humanity to them and remind the communities that this wasn't a sex worker that died here. This was a person and that person mattered and we should all care that someone killed them and we should go out and find out who did it and find out who their name is and return them to their families. The DNA for the two remaining victims are already in the database, and the word continues to spread. It seems like only a matter of time before Shane gets his next big break in what has now become a five-year journey to find answers. All that's needed now is for this story to reach the right ears. Maybe you, or someone you know, is exactly the person who needed to hear it. I want to give a huge thank you to Shane Waters for taking the time to tell this incredible story. If you'd like to find out more about Shane and his podcast, Foul Play, we'll provide links in the episode notes. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. 
To listen to the Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com/madness.